You are about to listen to Where Your Treasure Is, the podcast where faith and finance meet. Please note that the views expressed are our own and in no way represent any form of financial advice. And remember, investments can go down as well as up. Happy listening. Micah 4.4 Everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. Uh, thanks for that, Bex. Appreciate it. Um, I just wondered if there's anything else the Bible might have to say about, I don't know, owning your own home, perhaps? So much more. John fourteen twenty three. Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. And in Acts 2, 46, it says, Every day... They continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Later on in Acts 18 verse 26, he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. Again, Acts chapter 4, 32 to 35. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had with great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. And in 2 Corinthians 5 verses 1 to 2, it says, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling. The Bible says so much about homes in so many different contexts. And I think that they play a significant part in God's mission and the part that we play in serving him. But the Bible is also clear that we should not store up treasures on earth and that our earthly home, both those of bricks and mortar, as well as those of flesh and blood, will one day be replaced by heavenly homes and heavenly bodies. John 14 too. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? So how are we going to talk about getting a first home in the right context of biblical teaching, but also considering how to approach it from a financial perspective? Well, as we often do, let's start with some facts and figures. In the UK, there are estimated to be about 28 million homes. That comes from the ONS, Office of National Statistics, Families and Households Report 2021. Of these, about 30% are owned outright by their occupants. About 40% are owner-occupied with a mortgage. 18% are social housing and 12% are privately rented. That came from Wikipedia, actually. Now, according to the OECD Better Life Index... Can I check, Simon? Is the OECD an office that I get to add to my list? Alas, no. Uh, The OECD is the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development. Feel a little bit disappointed about that. I'll try harder next time. 
In their Better Life Index, they list 41 countries and they compare the quality of life that you can expect to have if you live there. In terms of housing, the UK comes in 10th position and that's based upon the number of houses that have indoor flushing toilets, 99.5% in the UK. That's the stat they use. But it comes in 37th out of 41 countries for the cost of keeping a roof over our heads, with Brits having to spend about 23% of their disposable income just on housing costs, although that's probably going up at the moment. Now, home ownership varies massively across Europe, with 96% of Romanians owning their own homes, but only 50% of Germans. And what causes these variations? Historic, social and political reasons all come into play. The amount of houses available, the cost of land, the cost of building, mortgage rates, rental costs and taxation all have an impact. The UK is therefore the third most expensive country in Europe to buy property in. And that comes from the statista.com website. I'm going to have to call you out now, Simon. That's been enough stats What does this actually mean for our listeners? It basically means that it is really hard to get your own place to live in the UK. 28% of young adults, those between age 20 and 34, live with their parents. And that number is steadily growing. Don't think I didn't notice you snuck in that extra stat there, Simon. So how then can we help our listeners who want to get a place of their own What are the practical financial planning steps that can be taken? Okay, first off, your goal doesn't have to be to buy a home. For a whole variety of reasons, buying a property is not right for many people, and not just for financial reasons. Buying and selling property comes with lots of additional costs and stresses, and there's also the risk that you will lose money on owning a property, especially over the short term. Whilst on average, over the long term, house prices do rise, There are periods when house prices go down and there can be times when prices fall in one region whilst they rise in other parts of the country. So if you're the kind of person who wants or needs to move around, working and living in different places at different times, then buying a property might not be right for you. What I can say, though, is renting over the long term also comes with a cost. You will generally pay more to rent a property than it would cost to own that same property because, well, the owner wants to make some profit from you. And all the money that you spend on rent is going into someone else's pocket. And it's not building up your own asset worth over time. So buying property is generally financially preferable over the long term if it suits you. Let's assume that the time has come when you want to get your own place. Perhaps you're established in a job, maybe you're planning on getting married and moving in with your new spouse, and a time comes when it's just right to consider buying. Even then, as we're about to see, renting might be the first step in the process. What do you mean, Simon? How can renting be the first step in the process of buying your own property? It comes down to two major factors, deposits and affordability. When you want to buy a property, it is unlikely that you're going to have potentially hundreds of thousands of pounds that you will need to buy it outright. That is why most homes in the UK are bought with a mortgage. 
But you can't get a mortgage for the whole value of your house. At least you can't anymore. When you borrow money to buy a house, the lender is taking a risk that you might not pay the money back. In order to protect their money that they're lending you, they will require a deposit of at least 5% of the value of the property. So if you're looking to buy a property costing, say, £150,000, then you would need to have £7,500 at least as a deposit to put down. Now, it could easily take you months or years to save up enough money for just the deposit. And then you have to consider the additional costs, such as stamp duty, but only if you're moving into a property over £300,000, legal fees, survey fees, and the cost of moving itself. They could add another couple of thousand pounds to your initial capital requirements. But you can be glad that you're not actually moving home at this stage because when you add stamp duty and estate agent fees to selling a house, that can add thousands more as well. So the first issue is saving up enough money for the deposit and purchase costs, which is going to take time and you need to live somewhere during that time. So living at home or renting somewhere is a necessary first step for most people. But you mentioned that there were two factors. So what's the second one? Well, not only do you have to save up enough money for the deposit, but you also need to demonstrate to a mortgage lender that you can afford to pay them back. So take that property costing £150,000 and you plan on saving up a deposit of, let's say, £10,000. Therefore, you're going to borrow £140,000. To pay that money back, you're going to make repayments every month for years to come. Now, traditionally, mortgages would have a term of 25 years. But as they have become more expensive, many first-time buyers are now taking out 30, 35, or even 40-year mortgages. The longer the term of the mortgage, the less capital you have to pay back each month. And that makes the monthly payments a bit lower. But you still have to pay interest every month. And you'll be paying it for a lot longer. So in my example, that £140,000 mortgage, and I'm picking an interest rate here of 3.5%. We'll talk a bit more about rates soon. Over 25 years, that would cost you about £700 a month. And you would pay, over the lifetime of your mortgage, £210,000 back to the mortgage lender. That means you've paid £70,000 of interest over those 25 years. Now, if you made it a 35-year mortgage, 10 more years on your mortgage term, at the same interest rate, you would only pay £580 a month. So you've saved yourself £120 a month. Brilliant. That is good news. But because you're paying back over 10 years more, the total you now pay is £244,000. That's £34,000 more over your lifetime. So the short-term saving leads to a long-term cost. So taking those factors into account, how do we decide how long to take a mortgage out over? Well, each lender will have their own criteria, but let's imagine you can demonstrate that you have, say, £750 per month available to pay a mortgage. And you might think to yourself, well, Simon's just told me I can therefore afford a 25-year term because that was £700 a month. But one of the things that mortgage lenders are obliged to do 
is to test what would happen if interest rates rise in the future. If your 3.5% mortgage over 25 years now jumps to 4.5%, goes up by 1%, then your cost will go up £80 a month. That's up to £780, which is more than you can afford. So this is called stress testing. The lender has to be responsible to ensure that you don't just have enough to pay them back, but a bit of a buffer as well. So you might have to take out a 30-year mortgage to get the monthly payments low enough to pass that stress test. Other options you have are to look for a less expensive property or to find a cheaper mortgage rate if you can. So we'll come back to mortgage rates in a minute, but for now... How do we demonstrate what we can afford to pay towards a mortgage each month? So one of the things that you will likely be doing is paying some rent before you buy your own property. But when you own a house, you no longer need to pay that rent. So this money becomes available. You will also be saving up, hopefully, for your deposit and for your moving costs. And this money, those monthly savings, also can be allocated towards a future mortgage cost. Now, if you are living at home and maybe not paying rent, then you should be saving up more money, which allows you to build your deposit quicker, but also demonstrates that you have more surplus income to cover the future mortgage payments. And what do you actually mean by surplus income? So looking back a long time, when I got my first mortgage, the system was quite different. You would tell the lender what your income was. And then they would do some calculations and tell you how much they could lend you. It was often based on a multiple of income. So maybe five times your income or four times joint income if there were two of you buying together. And this led to problems because my income is only half of the story. If I'm already spending all of my income, then I don't necessarily have enough left over to pay for a mortgage. The lender also needs to know what else I spend my money on to work out what I can afford to repay towards the mortgage each month. Now, this is where some discipline comes in very useful. In episode three, I went through an example of someone earning a little over £22,500 a year. And after tax and national insurance and pension deductions, they took home about £1,500 a month. But not all of that money is available to pay a mortgage each month. They're going to have to pay for food and utility bills and insurance and clothes and perhaps running a car, maybe even having loan payments on a car. They might have some credit card debts that need repaid or an outstanding student loan or even a personal loan. Now, the mortgage company will deduct your other commitments to work out how much income you have left over. That's your surplus income to go towards a monthly mortgage repayment. If you're looking to buy your own property, then getting credit card debts and personal loans repaid will free up some of that income that you can then save towards your deposit, but also demonstrate you have more surplus income, which will allow you to either take a shorter mortgage term, which we know will save you money in the long run, or provide a bigger deposit and that might lead to a lower interest rate. So you mentioned getting different interest rates earlier. What do we need to know about that? Right. The interest rate that you're going to have to pay on your mortgage is a reflection of the amount of risk the lender is taking. 
If you come along with, let's say, a 25% deposit and loads of surplus income, then the lender is taking much less risk lending you money than if you have just a 5% deposit and just enough income. So you'd be offered a lower interest rate if you have a bigger deposit. That lower interest rate means lower mortgage payments. It's like a triple whammy. The more you save, the more you have for your deposit, which then means the lower your borrowing amount will be and the lower the interest rate, which means you'll have lower mortgage costs into the future. Then you have to consider something called fixed or variable mortgage rates. Now, a variable mortgage rate is one where the interest rate can change month by month. Typically, depending on whether the Bank of England changes the national bank base rate. When they increase interest rates, which they have been doing steadily for the last six months to try and combat inflation triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, mortgage rates then tend to go up. And remember that stress test of what happens if interest rates rise by 1%? Well, the bank base rate has risen by 1.65% in just the past eight months, although it is still actually quite low compared to historic averages. So most borrowers try to combat the risk of interest rate rises and thus their mortgage payments going up by taking out a fixed rate mortgage. The rate is going to be guaranteed not to increase for a period of two or three or five years. You will know exactly what you're going to be paying for that period. Now, a two-year rate will often be cheaper than a five-year rate. But it also comes with the risk that in two years, after you've taken out that mortgage, you've got to get a new mortgage deal. And rates might have risen. If right now you took out a two-year fixed-rate mortgage two years ago, and you got a mortgage rate of 2%, you might find your interest rate now jumps up to 3 or even 4%, and so your payments will also jump up. You can apply for a new fixed rate, but it's going to be higher than what you were previously paying. And of course, you might now fail the stress test if you haven't got the surplus income. You might not be able to get a new fixed rate mortgage. I'm generally a fan, therefore, of longer term fixed interest rates, maybe five years plus. You do pay a bit more now, but you have the security that you won't face a sudden cost increase for more years. Your hope would then be that you might have a few pay rises and have a little more spare income when the time comes to remortgage. And what actually happens if we can't pay the mortgage? Let's say we lose our job or interest rates rise and we can't afford it anymore. Well, therein lies the big problem of borrowing money, the big risk. But now on a much bigger scale, we're borrowing tens, if not hundreds of thousands of pounds. And so the consequences are also bigger. So you should do some of the following. Number one, see if you can reduce your expenses anywhere else to free money up to pay your mortgage. You don't want to lose your house. Speak to your mortgage lender about what's going on in your life. They don't want to have to force you out of your house. Maybe they can arrange a payment holiday you will have to pay that money back later though. Or extend the term of your mortgage to make it cheaper now. But again, it will cost you more in the long run. You could consider trying to find additional income, if you're still in work that is. Ask for some overtime or even get a second job. If it's getting really bad, then you might have to sell the property. Because if you don't, then the mortgage lender may be forced to sell it to recoup the money that you owe them. 
And of course, you can always go to get professional debt advice, either from the Citizens Advice Bureau or a debt charity. Now, if you're thinking ahead and trying to be as wise as possible, then you should build into the cost of buying property things like life insurance, critical illness insurance, or income protection. You can even get unemployment insurance. No one wants to have to pay for these things. But if they protect you and your family from losing your home in the future, then they are very worthwhile costs to pay. Simon, that's been a superb whistle-stop tour through some of the issues relating to buying a first home. I'm sure we'll come back to the topic of property ownership in the future, and maybe we'll get some questions in from our listeners about their own situation. You can get in touch with us by emailing us at whereyourtreasureis at freerangepodcasting.co.uk or on Instagram at whereyourtreasureispodcast. Absolutely. We'd be happy to share our thoughts and guidance as best we can. And if you haven't had enough of us yet, then do join us next week for episode four of our practical financial planning season, Make Money, Make Money, which is all about investing. Which just leaves it to me to say goodbye. Goodbye. This podcast has been brought to you by Free Range Podcasting. Let us take you where you and your podcast want to go. Free Range.